Hey guys, what's up, what's up? This is Paul, the one and only. Welcome to Unique Focus, where we focus on people that are intriguing and also affecting the Pan-African movement. Uh, today, it's a pleasure to, um, to bring onto the stage a friend of mine and also a mentor to some extent, uh, Mr. Claude MPA. Uh, he, he's just amazing. He's, he's loads of knowledge. Uh, he, he consults both publicly and privately uh, for strategic consultants. Um, at the same time, uh, he, he, he has developed a lot of entrepreneurs from the beginning stage of ideas to now those entrepreneurs are thriving in the world. Um, he, he's good at what he does. And when he gives you a suggestion and a strategy, I, I'll say just grab onto it, take it, and let's do it. Uh, Mr. Claude, welcome to Unique Focus. Um, how are you feeling today? Please uh, tell us about yourself. Uh, well, Paul, it's always a pleasure to see you. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm very, very happy to join you once again uh, to talk uh, about a subject that is very dear to me. Uh, I was born in the island of Haiti. Haiti is considered, uh, even though it's a small country, it's considered one of the greatest countries in the world. And um, imagine a small island that uh, in history was able to accomplish what no other country has been able to accomplish before. Imagine in the 18th century or early 19th century, a small island nation having the privilege and the opportunity to face the greatest army in the world. Mm -hmm. These people were so advanced intellectually mm -hmm. and militarily that they were able to defeat the French during the time of Napoleon Bonaparte. They were able to defeat the mighty army of the British Empire. Mm -hmm. They were able to defeat the mighty army of Imperial Spain. We're talking from a period of 1791 until 1806. These people, what they have accomplished is unquestionably the greatest accomplishment ever recorded in the history of the world. This is just in the military front. Yeah. From an intellectual standpoint, uh, Paul, mm -hmm. uh, in the 19th century, people of uh, European heritage felt that they were so far advanced mm -hmm. that from a scientific standpoint, they can prove that they were superior of all other people in the world. Wow. So a Haitian writer by the name of Antinor Firmin, he was able to refute that scientific premise mm -hmm. by writing a book. Well, the, the, the Europeans wrote a book, The Inequality of the Human Races, by proving scientifically using standardized testing, by mm -hmm. administering that test, let's say, to a number of European citizens, a number of Africans, a number of uh, people of uh, Asian uh, abstraction, Native American, and then from a scientific standpoint, they were able to prove that intellectually, it appears that the people of European heritage were superior. So this Haitian intellectual wrote a book, mm -hmm the equality of the human races, the legalité des races humaines, to refute the premise 
that of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And he was able to discredit the notion of white supremacy way back in the 19th century. So when we speak of Haiti, uh, it's unquestionably one of uh, the greatest country in the world. It is true that Haiti uh, has experienced some um, instability. Mm -hmm. But however, uh, Rome, people still talk about the Greco-Roman civilization of years past. So mm -hmm. I'm very happy to, tell, to share with the world and with your audience the major accomplishment that a small island like Haiti was able to accomplish. And I'm quite certain that can serve as an inspiration for Africa's youth today. Most definitely. Um, and uh, just adding on to that, um, uh, Haiti today has the world, world's largest solar-powered hospital in the world. On top of that, a small country like that was the first one to abolish slavery. So it just shows uh, it's not about the size, but it's about the heart. And Haitian people in general have the biggest heart. I think uh, the other day I was driving uh, down Miami and little Haiti, and I was just seeing uh, some people speak Creole uh, women speak Creole as they were shopping, and you could just see their passion like thriving throughout. Like, ah, and I was like, I felt like I was in Africa for a few instants. I was like, wait, where am I? Because just the passion, the happiness, uh, like the world is coming to a to to a mess, but there's still that joy that is kept within it. So that's one thing that I truly admire about your people, a hundred percent. Well, I must confess, the Creole language is such a beautiful language. It's a passionate <laughs> language. When people speak, people speak with passion. So it's, it's interesting. Now, um, because of your background, the reason that I invited you to this uh, platform is to speak more of the strategic aspect of uh, where we stand right now, especially with COVID-19 and Africa and Pan-Africanism. Uh, I myself have visited uh, West Africa and East Africa, and uh, there's a lot of youth as well as my listeners who um, who are really geared towards creating the Pan-Africanism. It's just now the strategy aspect. What would you advise and what's your viewpoint in terms of um, where we stand right now uh, in the global sense? Uh, the African trade agreement, in my point of view, represent the most important political and economic decision okay. ever made in the African continent in the past 500 years. So that agreement would create, I mean, a wealth of opportunity for every single country in Africa. Uh, the beauty of it is, Paul, if you remember, in the past two or three years, mm -hmm. among the top countries that had the highest economic growth in the world, according to the IMF, mm -hmm. was right there in Africa. Yeah. We're talking countries like uh, Ethiopia, Rwanda, Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, Senegal, Benin, Kenya, Uganda. Burkina Faso, those countries prior to COVID-19 was among the fastest growing economies in the world. 
Mm -hmm. So imagine with uh, the historic trade agreement mm -hmm. that will provide an historic opportunity for intra-trade among African countries. This and is just, And just to touch up on that before we go on, uh, if you do not know what the African Free Trade Agreement is, uh, it was introduced in March 2008 and made from in 2020 and it has about uh, 50, 52 to 55 countries have signed it in which um, basically 90% of the goods are allowed to cross across the borders um, uh, freely, meaning that you can sell uh, rice or uh, maize that you just grew in the back of your, of your house well, in your and you can sell it in another country uh, without being charged tariffs. So continue. Sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, what is very important is that uh, one of the reasons that the United States has one of the largest economy in the world mm -hmm. is because of the fifty states that has you know that do business among themselves. So technically, the United States doesn't need the world. The United States among those fifty. 50 states have one of the largest economy in the world. If Paul write a book, and that book is a success, let's say in the state of Florida, mm -hmm. Paul already has a market in all 50 states to sell mm -hmm. millions of copies. So that's why when you have a, a musician like a rapper, that person produce one song, and that person can automatically become a multimillionaire. It's because you have people with a single currency, mm -hmm. people with a single language, and a people with one market. And this is what the African trade agreement provide uh, to the African people. I'm so excited in particular for the African youth. Young people in Africa, which represent a majority of the population, for the first time can say that we're gonna have a bright future, just like the youth of Europe, just like the youth of the United States. Isn't that the same with the, uh, I know right now it's just crumbling, but um, the European Union, um, isn't that the same case why they had so much uh, power in terms of the Euro, um, because all those countries signed uh, to use the Euro, or how is that different? Because the language, of course, differs from every country, but... Well, the European Union was the best decision European leaders made in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. Because if you remember, because they were always fighting among themselves, which caused the First World War, the Second World War, where mm -hmm. millions of people died. Mm -hmm. So uh, realizing that uh, fighting among themselves, mm -hmm. uh, nobody gain anything except suffering and destructions. Mm -hmm. So when they decided to form the European Union mm -hmm. and uh, all of a sudden they created one of the largest market in the world and they were able to compete automatically with the United States. Mm -hmm. And they were able to compete even the countries that used to rely on colonies, countries like England mm -hmm. that used to probably control all the English-speaking countries in the world, mm -hmm. or countries like France that used to control, you know, all the French-speaking countries in Africa or in Southeast Asia. So because of the European Union, 
Europe was able to maintain a level of economic uh, development and, and were able to create wealth for all countries. So no. these people put aside, one second, they put aside uh, their differences, they put aside their languages, and even their currency, and uh, adapted a one currency, the euro, and that allowed them to just to commerce throughout the continent. Go ahead, Paul. There's a saying that says um, the, there's one language that's understood by everyone, and that's money. <laughs> no matter yes. what. So uh, the reason why I introduced the euro, the uh, the European Union, and comparing it to the Americans is, I can see, I can definitely see how the power of, like for example, Texas which brings the oil, Florida that brings the tourism, California that grows the food, how they can, can build an economy. Um, I, I wanted to connect the European Union uh, to the pan-Africanism saying that you can keep your culture, like the Italians, uh, the, um, the uh, England and so forth. They kept their language, they kept their culture, but opened up the language of money. Is that true? Can we keep, can we keep, like for example, in, in Ethiopia, they speak Amharic. In Kenya, they speak Swahili. Um, in Uganda, they speak Gandanese. Can we keep our language yet create a pan-Africanism? Because I believe language would be hard to enforce throughout. Well, what is very interesting is that uh, language doesn't really represent uh, a handicap from that perspective. Okay. Granted, in the United States, it's an asset because the United States is very unique from that perspective. Everybody in all 50 states, probably to the exception of uh, Puerto Rico, which is just a commonwealth where mm -hmm. they speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. But uh, in Europe, the French speak France, the Greek speak Greek, the Italians speak Italian, the British speak English, the Germans speak German, and yet they speak the language of money. And all of them have been extremely successful by opening up their markets and able to trade among uh, themselves. But for Africa, it's, the opportunities are unlimited, Paul. Why? It's because everything in Africa there is a demand. The agricultural sector is undeveloped, it's untapped. Mm -hmm. The pharmaceutical sector is untapped. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If right now you create uh, a manufacturing producing pharmaceuticals, you have a multi-billion dollar market in Africa. Mm -hmm. If you use those agricultural, those horrible lands to produce the kind of things that people in Africa need, mm -hmm. like uh, sweet potatoes, banana, cassava, peanuts, beans, eggplants, cucumber, all those basic food staple that Africa needs. Imagine you have over 50 countries to just ship, it, ship those products. So here's, here's one thing I'm saying. What I'm saying is that every sector that you can think of, that sector is not really tap. It's not really, uh, it's not really uh, uh, developed. Whether it's the technology sector, it's the housing. Do you know how many uh, homes is needed in Africa? You could build 500 
million homes and still Africans today, and it's still not be enough. You know what I mean? To bring the African people to uh, the 21st century, to have running water, to have electricity, for them to really have uh, decency that they deserve. It's interesting you say that because that, that opens up um, a question or something that has been in my heart, heavy in my heart, is, for example, the housing. Right now, we have uh, a pouring of uh, Asian Haitian, um, not Haitian, uh, sorry. Uh, Chinese. Chinese developers that have just poured into the country building uh, buildings in like less than two weeks, basically. One is put on the ground. Uh, fabrics are just copy paste, copy paste. On top of that, um, a mistake that governments are doing, they're also giving a lot of land to those Chinese companies. And those Chinese companies are harvesting endless amount of rice and maize and stuff like that. Um, how, how, can we, how can we compete with uh, people or, or with um, people who have resources and are backed by, um, now we're speaking to entrepreneurs, how can we compete in that industry? How can we cover a little pie in that industry? Okay. Uh, Harvard University used case studies so you learn from someone else. Okay. One of the most important investment uh, in uh, infrastructure is being built right now in Ethiopia. Mm. Great Renaissance Dam. You heard about that project. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? The government didn't go and beg the world. They simply issued national bonds. People take pride. You know what I mean? Little kids, parents bought a hundred bonds for their kids. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then for them, it's not so much an investment for them to eventually cash that bond. Mm -hmm. But to them, it's the, it's the infrastructure, it's the electricity that the whole country will be able to benefit. Mm -hmm. So how does government generate money? Gen government generate money, first of all, through Taxes, you tax people so that you generate revenue. You do, you tax, tax you issue taxes on housing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You do uh, sales tax, you do income tax, you do uh, treasury bonds. You mm -hmm. do, those are things that if you remember, for, since Jesus was on earth, they used to tax people. You remember what Jesus says, give to Caesar what belonged to Caesar yeah. and give yes. to God belongs to that. <laughs> so taxes is something that most African countries do not generate enough taxes mm -hmm. to help run their government. So from that perspective, two things is needed. You need good governance. And good governance, that's from the public sector, to make sure that government will be able to collect taxes. Government will be able to raise money so that they invest in infrastructure. They can lend money. If, for example, not, there is a very interesting project uh, by this uh, African uh, entrepreneur. You probably heard of Aliko Dangote. Oh, yeah, Dangote, the king of okay. Africa. That's the Bill Gates. Okay. Africa. So he's the Bill Gates of Africa. Mm -hmm. So this gentleman, he got a bulk of his money from uh, the African uh, West African Bank or Development Bank or something. Yeah. So 
this man was able to raise $10 billion. He's going to have one of the largest oil refinery in, our, in the African continent in the private sector. Yeah. Guess what? Africa, the opportunity is going to be in so many sectors. Mm -hmm. I think Every single country in Africa need 1,000 Aliko Dengote. No, 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 better yet, 10,000. We need 10,000 entrepreneurs like that in every single country so that these people can become, become extremely rich so that they can create jobs for the average Africans. Uh, it's quite interesting because Dagote is one of the people that I look up to because um, he started from very humble beginnings of with. Uh, he was able to save about $3,000 um, and then start importing and exporting agriculture. Like you're say, saying that we do have a lot of um, resources that we can take out there. And before you know it, he was, he just climbed the stone, climbed the stone. And before you know it, he was exporting uh, concrete and now he's the king of, um, of West Africa. So yes, I do see what you're saying. And um, I, am, I'm, I am in agreement, uh, entrepreneurs, we, we do have to look into that and see how we can use what we have uh, to, to, to push ourselves in the market, basically. So but you see, Aliko Dengote in some very limited sector. He's only in cements, fertilizer, and now he's getting into oil refinery. Yeah. But guess what? Agriculture is wide open. Mm -hmm. Pharmaceutical is wide open. Manufacturing is wide open. Um, you name the sector. Technology is wide open. We don't produce any telephones in Africa. And yet every single African, it doesn't matter whether there is electricity in the home, that person has one or two cell phones. We have to be able to manufacture those things. You know what I mean? How so, do we take that How do we build that manufacturing in Africa? Uh, I don't know. I get excited every time I talk to you because it makes me want to just get out of here and be like, "I'm going to do it right now, right now." So, um, can you give us some strategies on how to to get started? Okay, two ways. Uh, there is something called reverse engineering, mm -hmm. where you can take a product, you see how it's done, and then you just copy it. Okay. Uh, countries in Asia, whether it's China, whether it's South Korea, whether it's Japan, Israel, those countries can do reverse engineering. They'll take any product. As a matter of fact, Asia probably was able to beat the United States through reverse engineering. They'll take mm -hmm. an American product mm -hmm. and then they'll take that product and make it better. You take an American automobile mm -hmm. and then the Japanese would see and say, how can you use American ingenuity mm -hmm. and yet create efficiency, create reliability, and create a product that is so efficient mm -hmm. that the American people themselves would prefer to buy a Japanese car over an American car. So Africa has the same opportunity to do the same thing. So sometimes what you could do, if you want, you can invite Toyota. You can invite a company to come and open a plant in your country. That's what China has done. China has built the infrastructure and yet allow the Apple of the world 
to produce the Apple phone in China. For China built the infrastructure and allow uh, Walmart to manufacture all their products there. So uh, sometimes it all depends on how you want to grow the economy. You can create a self-sustaining economy or you can create an export economy. So in the case of Japan, South Korea, Germany, China, those countries have built export economies. So for the sake of Africa, uh, I mean, um, the sky is the limit because we are so far behind. We have not taken advantage of the agricultural revolution. Do you know how long ago? Would you believe that most farm in Africa still rely on rain? That's true, yeah. Rain so and also um, uh, last time I was in Ghana, um, uh, and last time I was in Kenya, uh, and I went to the farms, they were still digging out, digging out uh, day by day, which is not bad, but if you, there's research, now there's tractors that can dig that you don't have to actually go and actually dig a hole just by yourself. There's electronics that can do that, so yes. If, if you were to compare the African continent from a scientific standpoint mm -hmm. and see how much uh, food is produced using human labor versus machine, mm -hmm. using uh, irrigation versus rain, mm -hmm. using fertilizer versus, you know, not using anything at all. You would find that uh, Africa produce the least amount of food in the world. How, how do we, how, how can we get that knowledge from these people who, who have that knowledge, especially African-Americans who want to come back or want to visit Africa? How can we do that exchange um, of knowledge? Um, is there a way that we can exchange that knowledge with them? And well, now, the very purpose of education is to provide that knowledge. Okay. So if somebody goes to the University of Nigeria and that person specializes in uh, agriculture, you know what I mean, spent four years. So that person at the end of four years should know, you know what I mean, yeah. how to do crop rotation, how to uh, do irrigation, you know, there's all kinds of things that you need to learn, you know what I mean, how to use the best fertilizers to get the maximum, uh, you know, uh, harvest you know, uh, so far and so on. If you are, let's say, for example, you go and study engineering. Let's say, for example, a country like India that uh, decided that they would invest in science and technology. So every single year, India graduate enough computer scientists that these people can come and work in the United States. You know what I mean? For yeah. Apple, for, uh, you know... Uh, Microsoft, Amazon, and so can earn billions of dollars and send that money home. So uh, uh, those guys get those H-1B visa, you know, and things like that and come to work in the United States. So even if somebody get dollars $50,000 here in the United States as a computer technician, but when these people after four years go back to India, do you see how much money? take with them. So 
in, in Africa, people, we're going to have to make sure when people get a degree, that degree can be used for the betterment of the country and for the betterment of the people and for the betterment of the people who earn that degree. People should not just look at to get a job for government. As a matter of fact, in most capitalist countries, in most industrialized countries, people work in the private sector, not for government. So we need to change that culture that everybody, after they go to England and get a degree, they have to work for the government. After they go to France or Canada, get a degree, they have to work for government. And we I think, to, we, need and to I think we, we, on the next, or we only have about two minutes left, we have to dig into now the entrepreneur aspect of uh, our conversation next time. And I know we have to dig more uh, corruption and so forth. Uh, that me and you have spoken about outside of the books. Today, I'd like us to end uh, with something that you told me off, off the books uh, a while ago saying, hey, um, listen, if you're an African-American and you're trying to go back to Africa, um, it's good for us Africans to also reach out for the people who have retired and ask them to, to come back um, in sense we give them a place to stay and so forth. But yes, we'll have that conversation. Can you give us your last words or uh, last motivations for action? Well, I would say that uh, the future of Africa belongs to Africa's youth. But at the same time, Africa desperately need to capitalize on its greatest asset, which is the African diaspora. Africa has among the most educated people living in the most advanced countries in the world. You have the top African doctors living in England, in the United States, in Canada. You have the best engineers. You have the best computer scientists. China has been able to capitalize on its diaspora to transform China into one of the best economies in the world. The state of Israel has been able to capitalize on the Jewish diaspora that left Israel over a thousand years ago in some instances. And those guys have since returned and they have created one of the most dynamic and eclectic economy in the world, in Africa desperately should use the African diaspora, not just to send money to family members. Granted, that's a very important uh, contribution to the GDP of the country, but that wealth of knowledge can transform Africa into one of the largest economy in the world. Vietnam currently has one of the fastest growing economy because they are using their diaspora. So I cannot put emphasis enough on why it's so important for Africa to call, whether Ethiopia gonna call all the Ethiopians living around the world, whether Ghana gonna call all its citizens around the world, whether Nigeria gonna call its citizens around the world. This is an historic opportunity for Africa. I'm so excited for the continent, especially for the African youth. Paul, I'm Appreciate so thankful. You. Thanks a lot. I uh, look forward to seeing you next time. Unique focus. Thanks a lot, guys, for listening. Again, I'll give you the contact or email um, for you to reach out in direct. I appreciate you, Mr. Claude.
Paul, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Cheers.